Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s, New York City was in the middle of a crisis there was an average of 265 crimes a week committed in the subway in the first eight months of 1973. And Central Park became a place where many people got mugged and assaulted. It was one of the most dangerous places in the city. And even though New York held its first gay pride parade at the start of the decade, there was still widespread discrimination and violence against the city's queer community. And then came the 80s. Things did change in November 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. That's Tim Lawrence, who's written books about the history of New York's nightlife. The 80s were a time of relative optimism in the city. Ronald Reagan had introduced a plethora of anti-tax policies during his presidency that had caused a Wall Street boom. But while the boom ushered in a decade of financial prosperity for some New Yorkers, it left a lot of people behind. At the same time, Ronald Reagan was uh, cutting taxes for the rich and also cutting spending on welfare. The city was experiencing a financial uptick, but a lot of working-class people were really struggling. Cuts were being made to welfare. Their living conditions weren't improving. And the divide between working-class New Yorkers and wealthy New Yorkers was just getting wider and wider. So the politics of the early 1980s shifted very quickly. You know, inequality rose. Uh, the, the communities that suffered most from the slashing of spending on welfare tended to be working-class communities. While the wealthy had more money to spend and certain parts of the city were flourishing, working-class people were still struggling the way they had in the 70s, and for many people, it was getting worse. The crack epidemic was sweeping lower-income communities, and the AIDS epidemic was slowly beginning to emerge. The stakes were high for young people living in the city, 
but New York had always had a way of inspiring art and bringing together creative communities during the most socially turbulent times in the city's history. It was probably the peak of New York City party culture in the 20th century in terms of the sheer number of venues and the number of people who were going out every night, the creativity of the DJs and of the music that was being produced. The city was about to step into a creative renaissance. The culture and the music that came through was vibrant. The scene was just absolutely percolating. Dozens of new clubs opened in New York during the 80s, like Limelight and The Palladium, Tunnel, and Paradise Garage. We'll hear more about those last two in future episodes because in the 80s, the city's party scene was thriving. You know, I had just moved to New York from Detroit. I came here to go to school in 81 to go to FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. That's Jules Perez, who spent her early 20s in New York during the 80s. You know, it was all fashion, drugs, and music at the time, and art. And that was what really really drew me to New York. There was so much creativity being thrown at you from all of those different angles all the time. Moving to the city allowed her to find her truest self, something her hometown couldn't help her with. There was so much creativity and freedom in the clubs she went to, and the people she met there gave her the confidence to really express herself. So she experimented with music, art, and fashion, getting involved with the goth scene and learning more about the city's different subcultures. But it wasn't all fun and games. I mean, I can remember standing on a street corner, you know, just dressed the way I dressed. I think I was waiting for a cab, and I was wearing this amazing... I'll never forget it. It was a red sleeveless sort of fleece dress from Trash and Vaudeville that had graffiti, black graffiti all on it. And I had a a wide belt on and probably some Trash and Vaudeville kitten heel boots. Trash and Vaudeville was an iconic store that sold punk rock clothing. I know because I used to shop there quite often. So Jules confidently stepped outside and she felt incredible as she walked around the city wearing the clothes she loved. After all, she was in New York, right? She could wear what she wanted, listen to what she wanted, and freely roam the streets. But her New York fantasy didn't last. As she walked down the street in her outfit... A car drove by me really slowly and started screaming at me. It's not Halloween. This isn't Halloween. What do you dress like that for? And somebody threw a lit cigarette butt at me. So, you know, there, there wasn't the acceptance then that there is now. New York City wasn't a magical utopia where you could... Be whoever you wanted to be whenever you walked down a street. But there were some spaces in the city where people could come as they were. Nightclubs with dance floors where Jules could really experience freedom. Where she could wear what she wanted and listen to the music she loved. While surrounded by some of the city's most vibrant people. And once Jules started going out to those clubs, she couldn't stop. We went out pretty much... That's the reason why I dropped out of FIT. We went out pretty much, uh, you know, five, six nights a week. We were out all the time. And she wasn't the only one. There were a lot of people who were just starting out who had come to New York from all different places specifically for that purpose. Some of the most creative young people from across the country were moving to New York and jumping straight into the nightlife scene. 
they kind of congregated in New York. And that really, you know, that that really had a hand in building the scene there. So, you know, it's almost like taking the most creative people from all of these towns all over the place and then depositing them all in one place and watching everybody just sort of roll with it. You know, and you end up with just this massive scene of creativity. And one of Jules's favorite clubs became a magnet for some of the most creative people in the city. Jules would take the subway into Manhattan, walk to Chelsea, and then take a turn down into 21st Street. She would hear the muffled sounds of music leaking out on the windowsills as she walked closer and feel the energy of the club exuding out onto the street as she took her final step towards the door. This was Danceteria. The club in Chelsea that would go on to become a launch pad for iconic musicians an incubator for some of the greatest artists of the era and the heart of a creative renaissance. It was this hive of activity. It was this massive melting pot in everybody's, you know, musical careers and artistic careers and fashion careers. It was a dance floor filled with ideas and inspiration, frequented by artists who would become legends and musicians who would become icons all mixing and mingling together under the club lights as they danced to the songs they loved in the city that didn't always love them back. It was a place where queers and people of color and women who felt as though there was kind of, you know, outside discrimination would congregate in order to experience it as a space of freedom. But there was also an uneasy weight on that dance floor. There was always either an undercurrent or something that was much more overt to an undercurrent running through the dance floors of New York City. Life was getting harder for the people who found solace on the dance floor. The dream of what they'd imagined New York could be was shifting and contorting into the reality of what it was becoming. But during those nights in Danceteria, they did their best to forget and escape. They partied like the dance floor was all they had. From London Audio, iHeartRadio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, this is the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. A 12-part podcast about the iconic venues and people that revolutionized how we party. Some of the world's most legendary nightclubs were known for the unique community they welcomed, others for the cultural movements they started, and some for the musicians and DJs they introduced to the world. The best nightclubs champion new music, transform lives, and provide an escape from life's pressures. One more thing. This is the history of some of the world's greatest nightclubs, not a ranking of every club in the world. It's an exploration of the spaces, people, and club nights that made a lasting impact on our nightlife and music today. I'm your host, Alternate. I'm a singer, songwriter, musician, and I found my purpose in club culture. This is episode two, Danceteria in New York, USA. Danceteria wasn't just a club. It was an artistic incubator at the heart of New York's early 80s cultural renaissance. At Danceteria, young, creative New Yorkers found a place to escape and celebrate life in the midst of one of the city's most turbulent decades. And at Danceteria, 
everybody was a nobody on their way to becoming somebody. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 70s and the 80s saw an influx of people moving to New York from around the world. They were enticed by the stories they'd heard about the city and the dream of making it in New York. And one of the people who moved to the city swept up by all the rumors was one of the future founders of Danceteria. So my name is uh, Rudolf Piper. I am German. I was born in Berlin during the war. Rudolf grew up on the west side of the Berlin Wall, and he loved the nightlife there. He would go out partying most nights and danced his way through the Cold War before opening his first nightclub in Berlin in 1970. I always was a club guy. From Berlin, he traveled around the world, working at clubs and owning his own in cities like Tokyo in Japan and Rio in Brazil. I was having a good life, you know, and uh, one afternoon, uh, laying on the beach, uh, smoking uh, a joint uh, with uh, girls in bikini around. I said, you know what? Maybe the rest of my life is going to be like this, laying on the beach, uh, smoking dope. That's not too bad for a lifestyle. But you know what? I have to do something you know, more than that. Rudolph had heard rumors about Studio 54. And I said, I have to be part of this. I mean, I cannot just fade away without being part of Studio 54, which was the greatest, greatest thing of the day. The first night I arrived in New York, I went to the Chelsea Hotel, booked in, put my best uh, outfit on and went to studio. And then the story starts. He was impressed by the glitz and the glam and even spent time working at Studio 54 as the director of promotions. It was beautiful and luxurious, but it wasn't quite his scene. Studio 54 was still playing the nostalgic disco music of the 70s and felt trapped in a bygone golden age, whereas Rudolph was looking to the future. 
He wanted to be part of the next movement in music and culture. So he and his friend, Jim Forat, a talent booker in the city, decided to start their own club. And they called it Danceteria. There were three versions of the club, but we're going to go to the second and most important Danceteria that opened in 1982. The venue, too, uh, was on uh, 21st Street in Chelsea, uh, between 5th and 6th Avenue. But Chelsea in 1982 was miles away from what Chelsea is like now. Back then, it wasn't affluent, glamorous, or, you know, gentrified. Chelsea in those days was basically abandoned. In those days, you could walk from the East Village to the 21st Street Dance Churia without one store open, without one bar being open, without nothing, nothing in this entire stretch from the East Village to the 21st Street at night. It was dark as hell, not even uh, street lights were on. It was abandoned. Rudolph loved it. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Berlin, so I, I, I was born in a city that was destroyed. So I sort of liked destroyed cities. He and Jim signed a lease on a building on 21st Street and opened Danceteria. Uh, my name is Jim Forat, and I'm a cultural instigator, and I've been around for a very, very long time. Jim and Rudolph had spent nights partying all around New York. So when they started Danceteria, they knew exactly what types of people they wanted to see on the dance floor. I wanted people, A, to know each other, different kinds of people. The door policy was not a Studio 54 policy, who's famous and who's rich. It was based on bringing a mix of whom New York City was about. Celebrities weren't a priority. As a matter of fact, there was a slogan of Danceteria being the place where everything was nothing and everybody was nobody. They wanted to bring together people from different races and parts of the city to create a vibrant, artistic melting pot on the dance floor because they believed that dancing had the power to truly bridge divides. So when you have a great DJ and you have a great door policy which mixes people on the dance floor with the beat, they're all fucking dancing together. You find people letting go of the things that keep us apart, letting go of the fear that is built into a culture that is based on racism and classism and all those political words. So that was the goal. Danceteria was inclusive. It brought people together from different backgrounds and became a space for women and queer people to party without fear. But don't get it twisted. You had to be cool to get past the front door. Well, as far as Rudolph was concerned, you just had to look fabulous. That was kind of his tagline. It was so important to him that sometimes he would spot someone on the street who looked fabulous and invite them to the club, which is how Jules got her first introduction to Danceteria. She was out partying at another club in the city when Rudolph approached her. I was out one night at the Roxy and I ran into one of Danceteria's, well, actually Danceteria's founder, Rudolph, who started a conversation with me and asked me if I could bartend. I said, no, I've never bartended before, but I can certainly drink. And he just kind of replied, I like the way you look. Come by the club, we'll put you behind the bar and see what happens. And that was sort of his jam. 
That was what he was really all about, was gathering this massive group of people who fit the bill looks-wise. He was a very visual person, so he liked things to look exciting and look a certain way. When Jules walked into Danceteria, one of the first things she noticed was how people were dressed. There were different groups of people who were into different looks. You know, there was the B-girls and the B-boys and people who were breakdancing. They were wearing Nike and Adidas-branded tracksuits and bucket hats, fully embracing the B-boy culture and the hip-hop aesthetic of the 80s, inspired by hip-hop groups like Run DMC. And then there were, you know, there was the whole Vivian Westwood Culture Club thing happening. That was another look that was going around. Those were people dressed in the pop rock style of 80s and influenced by musicians like Cyndi Lauper. They were wearing multicolored pearl necklaces, leather, lace gloves, and big hair. And I was one of them. Nothing was safe from my scissors, my safety pins, or my magic marker. And then there were the goths, which is what I was. I was a hardcore goth back in the day. So it was kind of like a mixed bag, you know, depending really almost on what kind of music you were into. Desateria played all sorts of music. The club hopped between genres and styles united only by the fact that you could dance to it all. And because music and fashion were so intrinsically linked, fashion was a really important element of what made Danceteria the club it was. The East Village was teeming with, uh, with fashion designers that had little boutiques there. And so Danceteria was always doing fashion shows with new talent. The fourth floor of Danceteria became the go-to spot in Chelsea to see the looks that would soon dominate the city streets. With brightly colored avant-garde looks on the runway and experimental hair and makeup under the club spotlights, the community that formed around Danceteria was teeming with creativity. So Rudolph and Jim gave up-and-coming designers, artists, and musicians the opportunity to showcase their work. We all sort of converged to create this massive undertaking of fashion and art and music. The walls of Danceteria were plastered with posters from past performances and graffiti art that had become synonymous with the city's hip-hop and punk rock-inspired art scene. The first floor of the club had a stage for live performances that gave new and exciting musicians the opportunity to perform some of their earliest shows. There was a whole little subsect of kids that had grown up in New York City who were hanging out at the clubs already at the age of, you know, 15, 14, 15, or 16. And one of those groups of kids was three teenage boys who would go on to become the Beastie Boys. And Beasties, along with some other people, had been hanging out since they were really super young. I mean, the Beasties were super energetic, right? So as soon as they hit the stage, um, everybody tended to just get completely sucked into their energy and their mojo. You knew it was going to be a good night if the Beasties were hitting the stage. But back then, they weren't the Beastie Boys. They were just the Beasties. They've worked as busboys at Danceteria as teenagers. And so when they performed for the first time, they were just performing at the club as guys that the regulars already knew. It was just like watching someone you grew up with playing at your favorite local spot. 
you know, that it kind of wasn't really a big deal at the time. It, it wasn't. It was just the scene we were in. Danceteria was a club where many artists launched their careers. But at the time, they didn't even realize that the club would become the backdrop to their origin stories. It was a revolving door of, you know, of bands. A lot of bands that went on to become really famous. Danceteria had just gotten a reputation for being, you know, a place to play and a really great place to play. You know, it had a great atmosphere. Many of the most important bands and musicians of the 80s passed through the club and played some of their earliest shows there. Everybody from Duran Duran to New Order to The Smiths, um, Sonic Youth, all of these people have played at Danceteria. Danceteria was a magnet for some of the most creative people in the city because Jim and Rudolph had designed it to be that way. Here's Jim on how they curated the culture of Danceteria. What was important to me was building a template that was so strong it could survive and create a new template for nightlife. And the high art meets low art popular culture was a critical part of it. New media was a critical part of it. So to keep up with the direction the world was going in and to be at the forefront of shaping pop culture, they created a video lounge on the third floor of the club. Video was just emerging as an art form. The founders of Danceteria recognized that video was going to be the next big thing for music. And so they hired the filmmakers Kit Fitzgerald and John Sanborn to create and curate a lounge that screened music videos and visual art. It was a multi-sensory experience. We gave them $400 to go out to the Salvation Armies and get couches and things. And we got monitors that were hooked up to the band. So while people were in the lounge, they could watch videos while listening to audio from the performance going on downstairs. They sat on old couches surrounded by old TV monitors and watched videos on screens like they were sitting in someone's living room. And the reason I wanted those there is because some people come into clubs that are very shy, you know, and they don't know how to start a conversation. So I wanted to create a place, a, a place where shy people could get, could meet, and, and the conversation maker was what was on the video. When you stepped into the video lounge, you could see archival clips of people dancing that had been filmed in nightclubs across New York. You'd see premieres of music videos for musicians like David Bowie up on the screens and experimental moving art playing out as people watched in awe. And this was before the days of big music video premieres, before people sat trends fixed in front of their TVs. The founders of Danceteria were visionaries who wanted to be at the cutting edge of music, fashion, art, and culture. And so they created space in the club for all of it. Live performances on the first floor, DJ sets on the second, a video lounge on the third, and a space for fashion and art shows on the fourth. It was almost like a, you know, a supermarket-style um, discotheque or club where you could move between the floors as you most desired. And if you weren't interested or engaged with what was going on on one floor, then you could switch floors. It was kind of like a choose-your-own adventure, but in nightclub form. 
So this was what dance satiria was all about. It was about bringing together different strands of culture and seeing what happened if you put them into this kind of petri dish environment and let them run wild. It was an incubator, a space to inspire and be inspired. It was only a matter of time before the club produced an icon. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The glitzy, luxurious Studio 54 era was quickly fading by the time Danceteria came onto the scene. If Studio 54 was a who's who, of who the most famous people in New York were. Danceteria was like stepping into a time machine and catching glimpses of who was about to become famous. Like walking into the first half of a biopic about some of the 80s most influential stars. We were younger. We were the ones who were making the scene. You know, we were the creative ones. We were the ones who were creating fashion, art, and music. Imagine... Walking into Danceteria on a Saturday night in the 80s and seeing LL Cool J working as an elevator attendant, you get a glimpse into the back door and see the Beastie Boys who work there as busboys. Then you go to the bar and get a drink poured by Sade, who was a bartender. But back in the 80s, you didn't know who any of those people were yet. Young people who were still crafting their art found their way to the club before any of them knew what their futures held or who they would become. It was a lot freer, and there were a lot of people in the scene in the early 80s who went on to become really famous. Including artists like Keith Haring. One of the most influential modern American artists spent the nights of his formative years working at Danceteria. He was a busboy at Danceteria before his fame. And then uh, he was always bothering me. I want to I paint the walls and so on. And I said, okay, paint the walls. Fine. So I gave him like, I don't know, $500, go and paint the walls. And he went and painted the entire main floor of that Suturia with his, with his paintings. And okay, it was, was great. Everybody loved it. But it wasn't a case of Rudolph commissioning the Keith Haring to create a piece of art for the club. At the time, it was just letting one of the busboys who worked for him 
who had big dreams and burgeoning talent, do some decorating. Keith Haring was part of the scene, was part of the crowd. He was one of them. And this is what I always try to do. The whole club was built based on, uh, let's say, labor from the crowd. Like the bartenders were from the crowd. Uh, it was all a family. Desiteria was filled with people who were on their way to becoming somebody. Artists, musicians, and designers who were still in the early stages of what would one day become legendary careers. And someone else who would go from working at Desiteria to becoming a somebody was a 23-year-old woman who'd only arrived in New York a few years before. She reminded me of Barbara Streisand in her tribe. She'd moved from Detroit to New York to follow her dreams of making music, and she was determined to become a star. So few people have that focus and that nothing, no one will stand in my way. She was a waitress at Danceteria, and when she wasn't working at the club, she would head to the dance floor to party with her friends. She knew exactly who she wanted to become, and she spent her nights hustling to try and get people to listen to her music. But at the time... She was nobody. I mean, you know, she had a demo tape. So she would hang out at the DJ booth trying to get the DJ to play her song. Yeah, I would bring my cassette tapes to the DJs and drive them all crazy. I was relentless. They would see me and run um, because I just wanted them to play my cassette. And eventually, after asking dozens of times, a DJ at Danceteria finally played her song. Everybody got up and started dancing to it, and it blew my mind. I mean, seriously, like, that was everything to me. The whole dance floor came alive. They instantly loved her song. That song was called Everybody. And that 23-year-old waitress from Detroit was Madonna. So Madonna kept going back to the club and chasing the bookers and DJs down until she finally convinced them to let her take the stage. And on December 16, 1982, Madonna gave the first live performance of her career at Danceteria. Say, everybody! And now, No Antiandus is proud to present the world premiere of Sire recording artist, Madonna. Like, get up and do your thing! And that performance kickstarted the rest of her life. Once she finished her show with that one song, everybody went wild and applauded and so on. So then I said, okay, so she has a following, uh, she has charisma. And she had the talent to become a star. The DJs and producers she met at the club helped her launch her career as a musician. And within a couple of months, she was well on her way to beginning her legendary career. Madonna took inspiration from the art fashion, and creativity she'd seen at Danceteria and carried it with her all through her career. She was no doubt inspired by the visuals she saw in the video lounge too, as she went on to create iconic music videos and became one of MTV's most important music video stars. And her sound captured the sense of sensuality that you could feel on the dance floor. Madonna came to represent a moment when the dance floors of New York's clubs like Danceteria just felt like freedom. 
you knew that part of that energy was very sexual and sensual in the music that was being played. And I wanted some of that on the dance floor, you know, and that's why the DJs were great about bringing out the erotic energy in the mixes, you know, and it's not about sex, you know, it's not about, it's like allowing people to really free their bodies and free themselves. This was all unfolding pretty much during the height of the AIDS crisis. Her music captured the moment and the sense of celebration in New York clubs. But it also hinted at something darker. By the time Madonna's career started to take off, the dance floors like the one at Danceteria weren't just about finding somewhere to celebrate anymore. People were trying to lose themselves in the music, find refuge from everything that was going on around them and the fear that was getting louder with each week. You can hear references to this moment in one of Madonna's biggest hits from 1990, Vogue. Look around. Everywhere you turn is heartache. You try everything you can to escape the pain of life. When all else fails and you long to be something better than you are today, I know a place where you can get away. It's called a dance floor. In this clip from a speech Madonna did for World AIDS Day in 1993, she introduces a song with a dedication to friends she lost to AIDS. This next song I wrote about two very dear friends of mine who died of AIDS. And though you don't know my friends, I'm sure that each and every one of you tonight knows someone or will know someone who is suffering from AIDS. For all of you out there, who understand what I'm talking about. Don't give up. There was a sense of anxiety in the air. Each week, a new regular would be missing from the dance floor. The carefree nature of the club was beginning to fade. And each dance felt more vital than the last. People like to remember the 80s as being all fun and games, and it really wasn't. There was a lot of struggle happening as well for so many people. At the end of each night, everybody had to leave Danceteria. And when they left the club and walked back out onto 21st Street, they were hit by the reality of the New York they were now living in. So many of our friends were dying of AIDS. There had been rumors of a mysterious illness for a while. And by 1981, 15 people had died of a disease their doctors couldn't quite understand. Some thought it was a rare cancer. Others described it as a specific kind of pneumonia. But in September of 1982, the CDC used the name AIDS to describe the disease for the first time. It became a, an epidemic. It was determined of epidemic proportions in 1983. It needs to be stated, I think, that Ronald Reagan didn't even kind of address the question of AIDS in public. I think for something like the first six, maybe even seven years of his presidency. AIDS was rapidly affecting people across the country, especially in New York. But it wasn't until 1985 that the President of the United States addressed it publicly for the first time. Would you support a massive government research program against AIDS like the one that President Nixon launched against cancer? I have been supporting it for more than four years now. It's been one of the top priorities with us. But by 1985, when Reagan spoke out about AIDS for the first time, 
over 12,000 people had already died from it. When he did speak out, it just wasn't enough. Reagan showed, you know, very, very little understanding or sympathy for the plights. The lack of leadership, direction, and education led to even more fear and stigma within the communities that were affected by AIDS the most. So here you have a, a situation where the case of, you know, thousands upon thousands of United States citizens dying of a disease. Homophobia is, you know, is erupting around this disease because there's a lot of fear around the disease and there's also a lot of homophobia. And that had had a really significant impact on the queer community in New York and the nightclub scene. AIDS was so new that there was so much, gosh, it, it was so frightening back in the day because, you know, at the time, people didn't know how it was transmitted and, and it was just such a horrific, horrific way to go. And, and it was such a sad time for so many people that we knew. So Danceteria and its founders decided to take on a more activist role when it came to their programming. The club had always had a political slant. The Institute was very active uh, politically, let's call it, and uh, socially. I was always available uh, to do benefit parties for worthwhile causes like anti-apartheid. But when AIDS emerged, the need for Danceteria to build activism into their programming became even more vital. Jim Forat, in particular, was, you know, was a highly politicized individual, and he was quite didactic. Jim believed each person who came into the club could leave with a better understanding of the world, and so he programmed their events to reflect the politically charged nature of the era. Conversations about gender, sexuality, and politics were more urgent than ever. The AIDS crisis was an issue especially close to Jim and Rudolph's heart because it was directly affecting their friends, the people who they knew around New York and the community that had formed around Danceteria. They couldn't just sit by and dance through the night, hoping someone else would do something. They had to do something. So Danceteria started organizing events to help educate the community, fight disinformation, and reduce the stigma that surrounded the disease. I founded one of the first AIDS political groups, 10 days after the gay men's health crisis. The gay men's health crisis was the first community-based AIDS service provider in America. It was an information and counseling hotline established in New York City. Inspired by the GMHC, Jim started his own group, Wipeout AIDS. Who we targeted was gay men who thought they were sick, and that was everybody, because they didn't know how, where it came from or how it affected people. People were terrified. So Jim and Rudolph started organizing events at Danceteria to educate the community and fundraise for people who were being affected the most. The first AIDS benefit was at Danceteria. It was for a performer named Hibiscus, named George Harris. Jim had originally booked George to perform at the club, but his sisters arrived instead. One of the sisters came and said, George is sick and they don't know what's the matter with him. He was the first person I ever saw who had AIDS. I'll never forget going to see him. So I went over to St. Vincent's Hospital and it was, uh, it was one of the most grotesque. This was a beautiful, beautiful guy who heightened in a sort of androgyny, hippie kind of glam way. So it was devastating to see him lying in a hospital bed, so sick and terrified. 
And it was grotesque. It was grotesque. I didn't recognize him because people don't understand what it was like to have AIDS at that point. And I remember walking out of there and thinking, he's going to die. He's younger than me. It's not an OD, and he's not jumping out of a window. Those are the way people died, you know, at that age. Jim knew that there wasn't much that they could do to help George. The doctors and hospitals still knew so little about AIDS, but Jim had to do something. I went back to the club and called his sister, and I said, let's do a concert for to raise money because he doesn't have any insurance. They held a benefit concert at Danceteria to raise money for his medical fees. And then he died, and we did a memorial for, for hibiscus at, at the club. It was the first of many benefit concerts and memorial nights. They spent the next few years organizing fundraising concerts at Danceteria to help members of the community who were struggling with medical costs. And then they brought people together, heavy with grief, to remember and celebrate their friends' lives at memorial events in the club. The Danceteria dance floor had started off as a place for people to express themselves. Then it had become a place to escape reality. But by 1985, it had become an activist space too. There was obviously a a kind of a lot of pain, but also people were finding some level of public solace in terms of being able to gather and celebrate these people's lives. They didn't know who would be there the next time they went. Who else they would lose before they listened to music together like that again. So each dance felt vital. Each night on the dance floor felt more urgent than the one before. When we go out tonight, we want a party. You know, like, you know, as if there is no tomorrow. Danceteria became the place to temporarily escape the diagnoses and phone calls, hospital visits, and the constant undercurrent of fear. It became a reminder of the lives they've lived, of the people they'd loved, and of the community they'd found on the dance floor. Danceteria closed in 1986. It basically closed by several reasons, uh, one of them being my exhaustion with the security because I was doing this for years at this point. It was a difficult job because it required uh, filling four floors seven nights a week, uh, talent, uh, DJs, uh, social life, uh, art exhibitions. It was a lot to take on especially since it was so hard for clubs to keep up with the way that music and culture were constantly shifting and evolving. The area around them was changing too. Chelsea was beginning to gentrify, and the rent for that building on 21st Street was getting more expensive. So they decided to close the club and move on. But Danceteria had such a central role in New York's cultural renaissance that its legacy didn't fade when the doors closed. I was aware that I was doing something important and special. Uh, Whether it was uh, going to be known uh, so many years later, that was uh, only a hope I had in those days. (laughs) And I am quite uh, happily amazed that it is happening now. Danceteria was a creative incubator. It attracted some of the most exciting people in the city and brought them together into a melting pot of creativity. It gave artists like Keith Haring the opportunity to experiment and showcase his art. 
It gave musicians like the Beastie Boys the opportunity to spend their formative years surrounded by people who inspired and celebrated them. And Danceteria was a launch pad for legends like Madonna, giving her the opportunity to perform for the very first time and experience the unique euphoria of watching a crowd dance to her first song. It was a hedonistic lifestyle. And still today, I hear and there messages uh, on Facebook and whatever of people saying, well, you changed my life. I mean, I would not be the same, would it not be for this chariot? My friends who are still around, when we talk about it, we all remember it fondly. We all have pieces of Vivian Westwood from the 80s packed away, and we all have T-shirts that were signed by Keith Haring that are packed away. But we all have collections of little mementos because they mean so much to us. There wasn't a single other club in New York City quite like Danceteria in the 80s. And there hasn't been one since. It was a hub of creativity, activism, and change. Each person who stepped onto its dance floors became part of a bigger story of music, community, and celebration in the midst of fear. Its legacy lives on because of all the hope it gave to the people who loved it the most and the influence it had on the dance floors across the city. But there will never be another club like Danceteria. In the next episode, I'm going to take you to an underground gay club in London that was open all night and transformed the way we party. We're fast-forwarding to the 90s and spending a night at the legendary trade at Turnmills. The History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs is produced by Neon Hum Media for London Audio and iHeartRadio. For London Audio, our executive producers are Paris Hilton, Bruce Robertson, and Bruce Gersh. The executive producer for Neon Hum is Jonathan Hirsch. Our producer is Rufaro Faith Mazarura. Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez are our associate producers. Our series producer is Crystal Genesis. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager and Alexis Martinez is our production coordinator. This episode was written by Rufaro Faith Mazarua and fact-checked by Catherine Newhan. Theme and original music by Asha Ivanovich. Our sound design engineers are Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. I'm your host, Ultranate, and we'll see you next time on the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.